Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. If you're new, welcome and thanks for joining us. If not, welcome back. Um, before we jump in, there's just a couple of announcements that I want to run through for all of you. First, next week on August 29th, we're holding another in-person worship service at our worship center on our campus here in West Seattle. That'll be at 10 a.m. on August 29th. This is also a great time to bring your kids for back to school Sunday. We'll have a small gift for every child who is there on August 29th. And we'll also be talking that day about our very special and unique regathering plans that we have in store for us this fall season. It'll be a little bit different. So keep tabs on us here on YouTube as well as on our website and on other social accounts for a video about those plans as well. And last but not least, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe as well as hit the like icon below. It'll really help our channel out. Okay, onward. Last week, we talked about these two stories. The story of Joseph being sold and this often not preached upon story of Judah and Tamar. And the main takeaway last week was how we often objectify and dehumanize people to get what we want. And today we're going to pick up with the person of Joseph. And instead of talking about how we objectify people, we're going to talk about what happens when we are the person who is dehumanized and objectified. How are we to engage the story when this is going on in our lives? So to start, let's just consider for a moment what it would be like to be Joseph for a second. I want you to put yourself in his shoes, in his circumstances for a moment. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What do you know and not know about the future? What are you thinking about your brothers? How do you feel about them? And what do you feel about the master that you have now? Imagine what it would have been like to hear your brothers arguing over what to do with you while you're bruised and battered at the bottom of that cistern. You're hearing things you'd never thought you would hear come out of their mouths, like whether or not they should kill you right there or sell you into slavery. What emotions are you dealing with right now? Anger? Sorrow, despair, revenge, bitterness, depression. Are you praying right now at the bottom of that cistern? And what type of prayers are you praying when they hand you over to a group of people you don't know who tie you to a chain gang behind their group of camels? Just an object, something that they're going to sell as they take you away to some place you don't even know where. I say all that because I'm convinced that if you've been in church for a little bit, even just a few weeks maybe, that we just skip through these stories, breezing through them, if you will, uh, forgetting the very stark realities that these stories convey, that these people were real and had feelings and emotions and lives. So we need to put ourselves into these stories to fully experience what is happening in them. So with that, we're going to pick up the, the story with Joseph being sold as a slave to the Ishmaelites. And these guys are going to bring him to Egypt. And before we get into that, what we're reading is not just a, a, a quick few months on the calendar. What takes place today and what we read takes place over 13 years of life and trauma and suffering and exploitation. And we would do well to keep that emotional weight at our center while we go through this, because even though some good things happen here, it is also really ugly. So here's the passage, starts in Genesis 39. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, 
and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, a lot of people know this story. You might know this story, so you may have trained yourself to be used to it, but that is an unexpected statement. Joseph is a slave. This is not a good work relationship. He's a slave, and you do not succeed in slavery. When you're a slave, then you're always a slave, and you do slave things, and you're always treated as a slave. I mean, and, and we need to say this, there's a tie in here that we need to address. We've been doing a lot of work on racial justice as a church family so that we can be the bridge as a group of people for racial justice in our neighborhood, in our city. We've been studying black history and anti-racism for over a year now. And I highly recommend you check out the resources we've listed on our racial justice page online. Uh, even recently, Beth and I started watching the Underground Railroad series on Amazon. And if you want to know what slavery was like in more recent history in America than what we're talking about in the Bible, you could check that out. But a warning and a disclaimer, it's graphic and extremely difficult to watch. And you will want to and probably have to look away. Uh, and I'm not saying that what you see there is exactly what Joseph experienced, but slavery in Egypt around 2,500 years ago, it, it was still slavery. So when it says that he found favor in the eyes of his master, that's just weird. It is not normal. Joe and Potiphar aren't cracking cold, a cold one on their break. They're not buddy-buddy. He is still a slave and he is treated as a slave. So the fact that somehow he becomes successful in the midst of this reality we should be going, wait, what? So verse 3 says, His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now, hands in the Hebrew is the word yad. So it's interesting to note that this word yad or hands, it's going to show up multiple times in this story. And one of the first times it shows up is a couple of chapters prior to this when his brothers, they quote, seize him in their hands and they take his robe away and they chuck him in the cistern. And then they sell him into the hands of the Ishmaelites. So the word hands in, in, in Hebrew, it carries with it this notion of controlling the situation under our own power. It's how we manipulate our surroundings and others. In other words, it doesn't just literally mean hands. And this story will keep driving home the point about how people use their hands to interact and engage in situations with other people. And what we'll find is that whatever Joseph does with his hands, he is successful with that. And so he's trusted with whatever he does with his hands. So his master, not his boss, his master sees that everything he does with his hands is good and succeeds. And so his master trusts him more and more. But there's this question that we need to wrestle with, and that is, is Joseph, Joseph successful because God blesses him? Or does God bless Joseph because Joseph is successful with what he does? And here's my thought. It's both. Because Joseph refuses to be limited and held down by his circumstances because everything he touches, he does well with. And every time he has a chance to bless others, he does, including those above him who are oppressing him, including his master. He's going to bless them anyway. Because of that, God says, I'm going to bless that. I can work with that. So verse 4, 
Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in-house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So let's stop for a second to think and apply this to you in your job, me and my job as an employee. Here's the question. Is this the way that you work for your employer at your job? When your boss looks at you, is this the type of person your boss sees? Or even kids, you're not off the hook. When your parents look at you, do they see you this way? Like if you're always complaining about responsibilities and chores and not getting to do what you want and not getting to do things when you want, it's because of the way you're engaging in the story. So parents, if you're watching this with your kids, this is the perfect time to give them a little nudge right now. But like, is this, is this the way you engage with life in the opportunities you have for work? Are you always seeking to do well, to be faithful and to bless others? Because if you do do that, people are going to notice. It stands out in our culture because people don't do that. And this is what Joseph does. So put yourself in his shoes again. He's a slave. There are no promised promotions. There is no Christmas bonus. There is no vacation. There is no zero. I mean, he has zero rights, none. He can't complain about wages because there are none. There's no union. He has every reason in the world to whine and complain and feel like the victim. But he doesn't do that. In Joseph, we see the tenacity of Jacob, I think. Why? Because these verses look a bit like Jacob when he worked for Laban. When Jacob was under Laban's household, Everything he did blessed Laban, but Jacob was always conniving and manipulating and striving and trying to get what he thought he deserved. But we don't, we don't really see that with Joseph. It's like we see the tenacity of Jacob combined with the faithfulness and peacefulness of Abraham. Well, let's keep going. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, it says next. In other words, he was like a cologne model, all chiseled features and perfect posture and hair. But what's, what's interesting, if we stop and think about it, that was exactly what was said about Joseph's mom. It was the way she was described, the exact same way. So already, in these first few verses of chapter 39, we have two references to prior Old Testament characters in the lineage, his dad, Jacob, and his mom, Rachel. And as we keep reading, you're going to see more and more references and allusions to these other Old Testament characters that are in the line. Instead of isolating Joseph's story like we often do, like this is just Joseph's story and we set it apart and put it right here by itself. As we read the story, it becomes really clear and convincing that Joseph's story is the needle on a long thread that's been woven throughout Genesis. And Joseph somehow becomes the resolution that the narrative of Genesis has been working on. So with him, healing starts for his family and also for the world. So so it says he was good looking. And verse 7 says, And after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Important to note here, not Potiphar, but God. And so we get another glimpse into this person of Joseph. And I want you to remember again, he is a slave. He could have said, hypothetically, because he is a slave, that he had to do what Potiphar's wife said, because she's up here and he's down there and he has to do what she says. 
And when you study ancient history or even the history of slavery in America, what you find is that this was a common occurrence. People didn't buy slaves just to do physical work. There were things that happened to them that were brutal and ugly and sick and wrong. And we often don't think about that Joseph was probably exposed and victimized in many of the same ways. So he could have said in this, session, in this situation, I have no choice. Your wife told me to. He could have said that to Potiphar, but he knows for some reason that he has a calling from God that he can't do it, that if he does this, it'll jeopardize his own identity as well as the calling that God has placed on him and his family, and he can't do it. Verse 10, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her to be with her. So day after day, he didn't just say no once. He kept saying no. Verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house. And by the way, we're going to come back to this. I want you to notice how much the word house comes up and will continue to come up. Verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now, at this point, I know there's a lot of pastors and preachers that make a big point here, and it's a good point, that he flees from temptation, which you should. But more importantly, I want you to notice that this is the second time, the second time that someone has grabbed his garment and taken it from him. And that's going to show up uh, several times in his life. First with his brothers and the coat of many colors. This time, it's a different garment. In fact, each time it shows up, it's a different word for a different type of garment. But he left his garment in her hand, her, he, it says. Her hand is the word, Hebrew word yad, and he fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. So this is the second time someone has taken his garment and the second time someone has, has used his garment to construct a false narrative and to protect themselves and to make an object of him, to objectify him, to use him. Verse 17 says, And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Just the way yours and I, our, mine would be. And verse 20 says, And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was in prison there. I want you to make sure you note that the master does not ask Joseph for his version of the story. Joseph is not listened to in any way, shape, or form here, and yet again he is victimized and his voice is not heard. So he's put into prison, and if you go back and plot out his trajectory, Joseph is a favorite in a household, and then someone in that house objectifies him and takes advantage of him and gets rid of him, and they throw him in a pit. And then he's in a new household, this one, and he rises to the favorite person again, and he's second highest, where he spent years doing nothing but good for his master, and again, Someone in that household stabs him in the back, and now he's in an even worse place. And it's not like our prisons today. It is bad. Verse 21 says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And you're like, okay, wow, that sounds good, right? It sounds amazing. 
But there's a lesson that we need to learn from this. Do you think that Joseph actually felt this steadfast love of the Lord? Do you think that when he looked at his, his circumstances while sitting in prison, do you think that's what he felt? Maybe, but there's something to learn here. God's steadfast love for you, for your life, it won't always change your circumstances. It didn't change his, but it can empower you to get through them. And then it says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And again, we should be like, wait, what? In prison, he's put in charge of everything? So hold on. You could hypothetically see how a slave could work really hard and how a master might say, hey, he's doing a good job and I'm going to put him in charge of other slaves. And they're doing a really, really good job. The master might put them in charge of their house like an assistant. But what about a prisoner? What, I mean, what opportunities do you have as a prisoner to even prove yourself? Not a whole lot. So what does this really look like? How does this even happen? This doesn't just happen. There were days and weeks of Joseph just scrubbing the floor with his toothbrush really well. And then all of a sudden the warden notices him and starts promoting him. This does not happen. And this metaphor is kind of lost on us, obviously, today because we don't understand what prison is really like back then or even now. I mean, the system that makes our prisons run now. Again, I recommend you brush up on our racial justice page online. And I do recommend you pick up the, the book, The New Jim Crow, and give that a read as well, just for a start. But as Joseph keeps doing what he's doing with his hands, he gets promoted eventually to the point where he's running the entire prison which is a head scratcher, which if you're Jacob, not Joseph, you're probably thinking, now's the time for a prison break. I'm going to get out of here, out of this situation finally. But this is Joseph. It's not Jacob. And Joseph doesn't act that way. He's not conniving and striving, trying to find an angle. He's faithful. And it says the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. And the word there is hand in, in his charge, in Joseph's hands, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, once again, you can idealize this and make up a version in your head where you think he's all comfy in prison. But he's still in prison, and it's just slavery in another place. It's not good. And this is thousands of years ago when the idea of social justice didn't even exist. And what's going on in Joseph's head? I can imagine... After all these years, he's tempted to forget, trying not to remember his dad or his brothers, like trying to get rid of all those memories, maybe trying to numb or desensitize himself to that and not think about it every time it pops up in his mind. And we wouldn't blame him for doing that because, I mean, honestly, we do this all the time with our own mistakes and our own trauma. It might pop up in our head and we're like, I don't want to think about that. We can't face it. In fact, we'd rather do anything but that. So now it's after this we get to the story of the cupbearer and the baker, with mo most of you are familiar with that. The cupbearer is the guy who tastes the food and drink for Pharaoh to protect him from getting poisoned. And he's always in Pharaoh's presence. So he has Pharaoh's ear if he wanted to. He can say something to him. That's who he is. And then you have this baker. But each of them, they do something and they get in trouble and Pharaoh sends them to prison. And while they're there, they both have different dreams. And they don't know what their dreams mean and they don't have anybody to tell them what those dreams mean. And this is where we get another glimpse into the person of Joseph. Because he's walking by and he sees their faces are 
downcast. And a couple things here. First, he notices them. He sees them and he notices them. And he doesn't have to do this because he's in the same situation as them. He could just be despairing and despondent himself. And then second, he actually asks them what's going on. And then once he hears about it, he does something about it. This is who Joseph is. So let's read the interpretation that he gives to the cupbearer so that we can see what Joseph says at the end of it, which I think is important for today's teaching. It's really interesting. Genesis 40 verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph tells him his interpretation of the dream, and then he makes this request. He's going to try to use this situation to benefit himself, which sounds a bit like what Jacob would do, but I want you to notice the way that he says it. Like, for instance, if, if, it, if it were you, if it were Jacob in this situation, or if it were me, you might say something like this. Look, I'll interpret this for you, but only if you do this for me. And then maybe you'd make a vow and an agreement or something. But Joseph doesn't do that. He gives the interpretation, and then he says this. Only remember me. Just don't forget me. Verse 14. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. And I want you to notice that he calls prison house. Again, that word house, as I mentioned, shows up throughout the narrative because Joseph started in one house, one household, and his family betrayed him. And then he goes to another house and then that family betrays him. And now he's in a third house with another kind of father figure, number three, and he wants out and notice what he says next in verse 15. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. And that's really interesting that he uses the pronoun they here, because he's not referring to Potiphar, he's referring to them, that they should put me into the pit. He's going all the way back to the beginning. Who, who put him in the pit? Who threw him in the pit? It was his brothers. He is talking about the cistern that his brothers first threw him into. In other words, he's back in the same situation. He knows that his entire, this entire course of events was set into motion because of that one traumatic event. He knows he's still here because of that. So he makes this request to the cupbearer, please, please don't forget me. So when we get to the end of chapter 40, it says this in verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Again, someone forgot him. The one person who could have done something for him forgot. So as we enter into chapter 41, Pharaoh has these two dreams. One is about stalks of wheat and the other one is about cows. And Pharaoh doesn't know what to do about it. He doesn't know what they mean. Nobody can help him figure it out. And that's when the cupbearer finally, finally remembers Joseph. So imagine Joseph now. He's coming before Pharaoh. He's been in prison, and he's been a slave before that. He's skinny. Who knows when he showered last? Poorly clothed, and Pharaoh tells him the dream, and Joseph just gives him the interpretation freely. In fact, nowhere in the interpretation does Joseph ever say, hey, because I've given this to you, will you please just get me out of prison? I mean, he does have a little leverage here. 
But he doesn't even say that, not at all. After, after he gives the interpretation, Joseph then just gives his advice. And he says, this is what I think you should do. Go find a wise and discerning man who can manage all this stuff that needs to be done. And then he's done. That's, that's it. He's done. Genesis 41, 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? So there's this dirty, stinking, starving prisoner before Pharaoh, king of all Egypt. And the way that Pharaoh describes him is that the spirit of God is on him. What is it that he sees? Pharaoh obviously sees way more in Joseph than just the ability to interpret the dream. Verse 39, when, when Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. So the first person in this entire story, other than Joseph's dad, to give him a garment is Pharaoh. Two times his garment was taken away from him. And this was the first time someone gives it back, gives him something to clothe himself with. So what I want you to notice is that Pharaoh is setting himself up to be Joseph's dad. He's given him a ring, gold chains, garments of fine linen. He changes his name. He gives him a wife. It's the first person in the story to finally listen to Joseph. Can you imagine if you're in Joseph's shoes and you've gone through 13 years of servitude and abuse and objective, objectification. So what are you feeling right now if you're Joseph? To be in a place where you can finally move on and forget everything uh, in the past and to just kind of to settle finally and accept your new life and go about your business and kind of rest? Who would blame him for that? I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Verse 43 says, And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. And that bit about bow the knee, I mean, that is in there because it's indicative of the first dreams he had 13 years ago. They're starting to come true. You're all going to bow down. And he's over all the land of Egypt. And you had this family that way back objectified him and forgot him and his dad that he longed for, but he didn't know what his dad was thinking or what part he played in it. If you were Joseph, why wouldn't you go back home? I mean, he doesn't go back home, but why wouldn't you? He's second in command of all Egypt. He can set off with like hundreds of people, soldiers, army, horses, whatever, chariots, go back to his home and find out what happened to his family, but he doesn't. Verse 44 says, Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphanath Paneah. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what this new name actually means, but we do know that it deals with secrets and mysteries, and he gives him an Egyptian name. So he gives him this name, and he gives him an Egyptian wife. The next part says, and he gave him in marriage, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, which sounds a lot like Potiphar, Potipharah. And there's a lot of commentary about that, too, about whether it's the same person or not. Generally, scholars don't think it is. But what is agreed upon is that this is a literary device used by the writer who put it in here to let you know that everything that's been taken away from Joseph by anyone in the past has been given back to him now and then some. 
Then it says, and he gave him the marriage in marriage, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, who, by the way, is an Egyptian god. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So 13 years of him remaining faithful and diligent, being successful with his hands and everything he's, he's been given, he does well with and he blesses people. Twice in the story, he's objectified and victimized. And once he was just flat out forgotten, but he keeps with it. 13 years of steadfastness. And we see that he continues to be faithful in blessing others. And God says, I'm going to work with that because this guy, Joseph, is like this. And Joseph manages all the work to prepare for the famine. Genesis 41.50 says, Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, which immediately makes you think of Jacob and Esau. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Now, this is his firstborn, his behor. So whatever he names his first child, we should pay attention to that name. What does his name mean? It says, For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. That's what his name means. So we get this hint here that now that things are going well, Joseph is finally trying to forget his story, his past. He's going to leave his old family behind, and this is going to be his new family from now on. But unfortunately, what we see is that when Joseph forgets his old story, he forgets his identity as well, what God called him to. Then verse 52, the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Joseph, see, is, he's wrestling with who is his dad. Who defines who Joseph is? Is it Jacob? Is it Potiphar? Is it the warden? Is it the Pharaoh? He's been wrestling with that for like 13 years through lies and deception and manipulation, and he's been innocent through all of it. And so why would we blame him? And then chapter 41 just kind of ends, and it's really kind of too clean in its resolution. What about Jacob? Who, who doesn't know what happened to his son and who's been in mourning for 13 years? Or his brothers? What happened to them? Do they ever confess? Do they ever get in trouble? Do they regret what they did? And the story kind of ends here, seemingly resolved with Joseph moving on. And what we're going to see is that he not only didn't move on, but God won't let him move on because that cistern has always been part of his story. The lessons he learned in the pit are going to define who he is and what he does and how ultimately how Joseph's going to save the world. Really, it's about not forgetting your story. You can't forget your story. So to wrap this up, I want to give you some implications. And the first one is, God is ever-present and ever-working in your life, no matter the circumstances. And he invites us to endure in this truth. Now, it's easy to believe or accept this, but to endure in it, is what God ultimately calls us to do so that when we face challenges that are bound to come our way, that we're going to be able to endure in the hope that God is not done yet. See, we often want a, the quick fix. We want the pain to be gone now. We want the success to come instantly. We want to rise above our circumstances right now. But it never works that way. It's through years of endurance. So will you trust that God is working even through the hard times, even through the ugliness in your life? The second thing is this, everyone will experience their own cisterns. And it's not our place to define and look down on them or to assume that this is the limit of this or that person's story. They may have made, they may have made some seriously big knuckleheaded mistakes to get down there, 
but it's not our job to assume that they should be down there or to keep them down there or to cast judgments upon them because they're down there. We don't know the fullness of other stories. We don't know what people have been through. We don't know the pain and the agony and the unanswered questions. We don't know what father figures they've had or not had. We don't know. And what we like, we, what we like to do is we like to pretend that we do know. We like to look at them and just assume that we know the whole story and to assume that this is all they're ever going to amount to. But they could be Joseph just as much where they are down there because of other people. So it's not our job to assume or to judge. The next implication is I want you to defiantly refuse to allow the circumstances of your life to imprison you. This is what we see in Joseph because even though he was a slave, he refused to act like a slave. And even though he was a prisoner, he refused to act like a prisoner. He defiantly rose above his circumstances and the things that he did with his hands, the way that he engaged his story, allowed him to rise above it. And this applies to you and me if you're in that state. But it also applies to you if you're in a successful state in your life. Because if you allow your successes to define you, they will also imprison you. You cannot allow things in life that can be taken away from you to define you. Because it's going to wreck you one day. The things that you hold on to so dearly to try to define your identity and your security. And God in his said that fast love is just going to say no. No more of that. And it'll be hard and it'll suck. That is not how your life is defined. That is not how you are defined. And this last bit is kind of a two-parter, but if you're, if you're at rock bottom, bless others with the work of your hands. And I know everything in us, we, we want to heal and recover, and I get that, but there's other people with you, other people down there with you. And just like Joseph, we're called to bless them. And yes, there's others above you who are usually completely unaware of what you're going through. And God calls us to bless them too. And when we do, they will see God. And just as important, we need to accept the help of others because it's easy to take this kind of message today and spin it as if to say, hey, if you're in a bad place, just stay there and stay faithful and don't say anything. It's okay. That is not what I'm saying. It's not what we're saying here. If you're in a situation that you should not be in, get help now. Tell someone, tell someone right now and get out, please. Please stop the video right now, call the church, call someone else you trust and tell them what's going on. God has not called you to be victimized and taken advantage of in, in that way. So call someone that can help you. Don't be imprisoned any longer. Rise above your circumstances. You are not to be victimized. That is not who you are. You are loved and cherished and meant for so much more in this life. So get help. If, however, you are out of your cistern, do the same. Do the same. Bless others with the work of your hands. Don't grow calloused and cut off and numb to those who are going through the pit right now. Don't do that. Provide opportunities for others to escape their prisons. It might be a simple phone call, like, is something going on? Can I help you? I'm here. I just want you to know I'm here. Provide opportunities, not just handouts to people. Handouts are easy. I can write a check and be done and feel like I've done my moral obligation or whatever. Let's end it here by saying, I want you to provide opportunities for people. Well, before we come to communion, as we come to the table, uh, 
there, we always have this section in our video where we direct you towards communion at home. And, and I want to remind you of a few things. Because today, with this story of Joseph, as we come to the table, we're reminded of another Joseph who was betrayed, taken advantage of, had his own garments stripped from him, and he did nothing to deserve it. And he was laid in a pit, but he rose above it. And then he called us to bear our own crosses. So right now, I want you to remember all this in the light of Jesus, who on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, he took wine and he poured it out. He said, this is my body, my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We'll end it right there. Until next time, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.